podcast from Drew and Mike is, I think it's really cool and um, that is what I wanted to say. Two and a mic. Having an opportunity to listen to someone involved directly in politics at the grassroots level is great. We all see how politics shapes the world around and way beyond us, but it's at the local level that we can directly live and experience it. For example, many people saw the war in Syria as a news item, a vague and distant developing story. Uh, they knew there was a refugee crisis, and they decided it wasn't for them. Nah, don't need them, not my problem. I have enough stuff to contend with. But the politics of our Western nations have been exploiting, manipulating, destroying, torturing, killing, robbing, pillaging, raping and beating indigenous peoples the world over for centuries. Is it a wonder so much of the world is currently experiencing conflict? Clearly the West is not the only evil, for no nation alone has a monopoly on mistreating others and claiming superiority where none exists. This isn't revisionism either, and nor is it apologizing or justifying violent terror and terrible responses served upon innocent people. Crimes should be recognized and punished accordingly. Recognized and punished accordingly. On the other hand, many people realize that fellow humans come because they need support, food, a way to live and develop, and that's what is happening in Reinickendorf. And this is also what Hinrich talks about at the beginning of our talk. We also talk about climate change. We talk about the taint of extreme political positions on social divisions and in general social regression in Europe and beyond. There is such a need to change direction. It is very clear that if we continue upon this path, we will not be able to avoid universal tragedy. Even if some people feel they will benefit regardless, any benefit they experience will be very short-lived. It doesn't have to be this way at all. I'm very thankful to Hinrich for taking some time out from his very important work to come and talk to me, and I'm already looking forward to our next chat. Hinrich, thank you very much for joining me. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Yeah, you, you are the first actual politician um, that I've uh, <laughs> had appear. So I've had lots of like like me, sort of amateur politicians, people who have studied politics, but but you actually live from politics. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time uh, from your busy schedule. May I correct you? I live for politics, not from politics. <laughs> it is it's all volunteer politics that I'm doing, so unpaid. Oh, mm -hmm. really? Okay. Uh, so not, not the full truth, because for this engagement in the local parliament, we get some, um, it's not remuneration, it's, it's a compensation. So uh, they give us about a thousand euros a month for all the expenses that come up along with uh, spending so much time on um, afternoons and uh, weekends. 
Okay. All right. Fine. All right. So I'm I'm almost correct then. Yeah. You, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Thanks. I'll get away with that. You're very kind, Hinduus. Um, But yeah. So we had the pleasure of meeting at this wonderful Amnesty International event where they gave out their Human Rights Prize for the eleventh uh, time uh, to the um, Ethiopian Human Rights Council. Um, it was a wonderful evening, wasn't it? Yes. Absolutely. I I enjoyed it very much as well. Because obviously it, it was a difficult dis, um, situation because everyone is thinking about war in Ukraine and uh, human rights defenders under pressure. And, and sometimes we maybe uh, over the situation tend to forget many other situations. So Ethiopia is, is one of them and to highlight them um, at that evening, which I found very powerful uh, with the laudatio from um, uh, UN. Um, United Nations High Commissioner Representative for Human Rights Defenders speaking um, on behalf of, of us. And um, the group is, is a, a really fantastic group in Ethiopia. They do work against all odds uh, with a lot of pressure against them personally. And, and so it was uh, a good thing. And uh, there was a lot of crowd and even the after show party, uh, lots of talks uh, going on. So I, I enjoyed it. Mm, yeah, yeah, and Dan, who who uh, sort of accepted the prize, um, was such a humble person considering the work that he does. Um, you know, everybody there was you know, was was in awe um, of what he and his team have had to put up with the circumstances under which they have defended human rights in Ethiopia, um, and yet he was very humble, um, and he almost couldn't believe that he had a standing ovation from the crowd, and, and that's so great to see. Actually, we traveled him through Germany after this event. Um, so Amnesty is uh, doing a lot of uh, different cities, little events uh, to bring him to the forefront. And we had our annual general meeting of Amnesty International Germany uh, following that in Cologne. And he sort of stood up uh, and, and spoke to the uh, um, total group. Um, it was good again. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. So, you know, wonderful work that you do. But, I mean, it shows that you are you know, extremely committed to a number of um, you know, very worthwhile causes. Um, so let, let's jump into them a little bit, because you've also um, mentioned a, a campaign, Willkommen in Reinickendorf, so welcome to Reinickendorf. Um, would, for people who are not from Berlin, could you explain a bit about Reinickendorf um, and then maybe what your campaign is as well? As some of you may know, uh, Berlin is divided into 12 boroughs. Uh, so there is a little administration uh, locally with a um, Rathaus uh, where uh, there is a little parliament uh, of 55 parliamentarians in each of the boroughs. And, and we do the local politics. Um, then if you look at the total of Berlin, it's one of the federal states of Germany. So it has a... Um, we call it Abgeordnetenhaus, which is the parliament of Berlin. And um, so whatever we are doing needs to go in um, close cooperation with this Abgeordnetenhaus. So they set, for instance, the budget, give us uh, money for Reinickendorf. And Reinickendorf is the northernmost uh, borough of Berlin. We call it the green north of Berlin, obviously with a hindsight that I'm representing the Green Party, but it is very green. It has lots of water and forest uh, and little villages within the compounds of the old West Berlin. 
Okay. And, and, and Willkommen in Reinickendorf is a oh, yeah. network. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so we founded this when uh, refugees came uh, to Germany in larger numbers, and it was in 2014, actually. Um, and we decided to set up a house in Reinickendorf to um, house them when they arrive. And there was a lot of complaints from the neighborhood that they didn't want to have these foreigners next to them for all sorts of unclear fears and for political reasons. And uh, we came to the conclusion uh, this cannot um, stand um, with the publications that they made and the flyers that they distributed, um, that it needs to be answered. So we invited groups and that included um, parties, that included churches, that included sports uh, clubs and, and others and said, we cannot accept this. Would you join and, and help us support these people? Because they are in a very precious situation. They come to a foreign country and we should welcome them. And that's when we found it welcome to Reinickendorf as a network. It is an unstructured network. Uh, everyone brings whatever he or she can, can give or is prepared to give. And that goes from doing events. It goes to personal um, help by accompanying people when they need to uh, get to public authorities and get their paperwork ready. Uh, to help with the children, with their homework, uh, play with the children, give the parents a rest, um, and everything that is required. And now this will come in Reinickendorf, then a little later gave itself a structure uh, as a registered uh, group. So we can uh, receive money from authorities and from private people and give them a receipt for their tax purposes um, so we can receive donations. Mm -hmm. And we can spend money for our programmatic work. So that's the total conglomerate of the common Reinick of the network and the EV uh, yeah, it, it's great work. I'm look, I'm I'm an immigrant myself in in Germany. Um, even though I'm now I now have dual citizenship, but um, I, I was an immigrant when I lived in Italy, and uh, I'm the son of immigrants when I was born in the UK. Um, so I can see the various perspectives, and I understand also how important it is to feel welcomed. Um, clearly, because I at least look to be of white European origin, um, I have certain privileges, which unfortunately lots of other people don't benefit from. So I, I try to extend a certain level of empathy towards people who would not necessarily say that European countries are as welcoming as they could be. Um, but what's great is the way that you get the community together as a collective to welcome people. And I, and I feel when I look at different countries and cities and um, you know, how they have prepared uh, the, the land, as it were, to integrate newcomers and immigrants, they don't do this. They just get groups of people and they put them in an area and say, okay, you take care of yourselves. Um, if you want some money, here you go. But there's no great political effort to try to link these different groups together. Whereas what you're doing is, is exactly that. Um, and how important is it to get local um, intervention, as it were, in welcoming people to make it a successful policy? From my perspective, it works exactly through this um, close connection that we build with the people who arrive here and the people who live here. 
um, if we jointly build a playground with refugees and um, Reinickendorfers, um, then these people work together. They may not even share the same language, but they see that they can build something. We have been painting schools because um, in the beginning, we needed to allocate um, sports halls and schools to house these people because they came in such large numbers. So for a while, this school couldn't use their um, sports facility. And, and then we came uh, to the idea, maybe we can get a few of these to help us uh, give something back to the community by voluntarily and without payment and uh, supported by donors, big companies who provided the color and the paint and the tools um, to paint schools. And that was, again, joint work between Germans and, and, and uh, people who uh, took refuge in, in Germany. Mm. And with this, people talk about this in their neighborhoods. They talk to their neighbors. I have been just doing this with this guy and he's very friendly and he has uh, small kids like you have. And that gives a, a sentiment in the neighborhood which carries. And, and we try to do more of this uh, in order to keep um, the momentum that we are a friendly borough, that we are welcoming and that we want to uh, live the culture of a welcoming culture. No, yeah, it's fantastic. I and mean, obviously this falls in, into line with the, the, the position that you have on humanitarian issues. Um, so uh, it's clear that this is something which is so close to you. Um, when did this begin for you? Because I mean, okay, anybody can simply say I'm a humanitarian, and, but then they live their lives in a completely selfish uh, manner and don't care. But, you know, you dedicate so much of your time and work and uh, we'll come to Amnesty in a minute. But, you know, where did this humanitarian lifestyle begin for you and why perhaps? When I was a student, I studied civil engineering in Hanover. Um, I needed to do practical training for my studies. And I decided to do this abroad. So my first stint went to South Africa. So I worked in South Africa during the time of apartheid in 1980 and learned about the very difficult situation in, in South Africa. I was even working in town planning where I needed to sort of work within the compounds of the Group Areas Act, where certain groups of the population could only live in certain areas. So uh, that gave me a first hint. Then the year after, I took another practical training in South Korea, because I, I loved the, the travel and I loved uh, being abroad. So I thought I'll do another one. And in South Korea, there was military dictatorship. And um, during that visit, I learned from friends and colleagues from Holland about Amnesty International. And I thought, okay, I've now lived through two of these situations. I need to do something myself. And so I joined Amnesty as a student um, in 1981. And then I was very active, uh, an activist within Amnesty for a number of years until I finally founded a family, got kids, uh, and um, made career in my profession. And uh, during that time, I didn't have enough free time anymore because the weekends became too precious for the family. And uh, during the week, I was traveling for my job. So um, during that time, I reduced. And when career became uh, ending, I said, okay, I need to go back to do more volunteer work. And first choice would have been go back full-time amnesty. 
And then I decided, no, uh, I'd rather go into broader politics. And then I decided to go in this local parliament as a representative of the Green Party. Okay, so that right. is the whole story and, and it's a long history. Uh, no, but it's wonderful. Um, and um, yeah, it would be great also perhaps on a future occasion to go more into your experiences than in, in South Africa and South Korea, because it's, it's wonderful to get that direct sort of primary source insight um, yeah, into how these things could, um, could have felt. And at the time, um, you were living in the former West or the former East Germany? So the former West, I imagine. West, West Germany, yes. Yeah. I, I was brought up in Westphalia and then went for studies to Hanover. Sure. And okay. only after the war came down, I moved to Berlin. So I'm a, a late Berliner. Okay, all right, fair enough. But I mean, also this, you know, having your your own country split in much the same way that Korea was split in, in 1953. So that also gives you a different perspective um, and something that I, you know, I never grew up with as a child, but, you know, a German always grows up or grew up in those days, luckily no more, um, with this wall in the background separating their country. And, and, and that, I guess, influences the, the psychology as well. Um, so yeah, it will be great to get uh, some insights into your thoughts on this forced segregation, uh, as it were. Um, but uh, yeah, and on a on a private note, my grandmother lived in East Germany, right. so my mother is originally from East Germany. So we had the uh, interest and the freedom to move over the border into East uh, Germany to visit my grandmother. And that brought me connections to young people in, in the east of Germany. And, and then I joined them through a church group and doing some volunteer work in Poland <laughs> for a, a home of blinded people. Um, so that opened a new perspective for me as well, uh, to talk to these young guys uh, my age uh, living in a different context uh, in the east of uh, this country. Mm, okay yeah i mean it's, it's a fascinating story and it's all, all these little secrets that you've got tucked away so you know maybe on a future occasion we can also talk about these things because it's um um yeah i, I think we're going down the path in some european countries of further division um and i think if, if we actually make a little bit of an effort to remember our recent past then maybe we'll choose a different path ahead um but uh, yeah, if, if that's okay with you in the future, we can come back and talk about those things too. Um, yeah, so, okay, Amnesty. So you are still involved with, with Amnesty International. Um, yeah, how much, uh, how much time can you dedicate to Amnesty and what kind of things do you do there? The time I'm investing depends a little bit of uh, the time of the year. Um, I'm leading a small group in the German part of Amnesty International that looks after international politics for the German section. So uh, as you can imagine, there is some 58 sections globally. And in order to be one movement with many voices, we need to agree on what is the program and what is the funding and, and what is the uh, things we want to jointly do and, and what goals do we can we reach. And so I'm working to represent the German voice within this global context um, through a little group of 15 people uh, that we look in all international communications and make sure that we have answers from the German side uh, to enter into the debate. There is a parliament in Amnesty, it's a democratic organization, so I'm representing Germany's section at this year's global assembly. 
which is then uh, roughly 100 people deciding on anything that needs to be globally decided on. Okay. So that, that is my one role. And the other role, you have met me at this uh, event. Uh, I was the spokesperson for the uh, board of trustees of the Foundation Human Rights Stiftung Menschenrechte. So if you've decided to put an operation in place where we ask people to part with some of their wealth, um, put it in the bank, and the proceeds of this money, we invest in human rights work. And with being more specific, we invested in human rights defenders support. So we look into projects, start point, end point, and uh, trying to reach a certain goal. And we help fund people's operations across the globe uh, to support them where people are on the front line, knowing that we in Germany are in a very privileged position that we have some fights to fight in Germany as well, of course, but uh, not as at such high risk like the people we supported in India, in Mexico, in uh, Chechenia, in Eastern Europe at large, lots of uh, groups in, in Russia uh, and Donbass for, for the situation right now. So um, trying to give them money to keep their operations going or make certain projects they want to do. Okay. And the Human Rights Foundation, or as you've written, Stiftung Menschenrechte, this is a separate organization to Amnesty. It's a separate body. It's a separate group. Yeah. It must be because from the foundation legislation in Germany, it needs to be totally separated. So it's an own organization. But in our statute, it reads that we support human rights at large, human rights uh, defenders more specifically, and that we obviously in support of Amnesty International as well. Sure. Okay. There are lots of um, sort of internationally uh, well-known, renowned organizations on the basis of human rights as well. So also Penn and, uh, you know, Penn, uh, they have offices also in Germany. Um, how much do you work with these various international organizations? And is there opportunity um, to develop further um, relations with them? Or would that be just too much work, do you think? It's always helpful. And we try to do that uh, as much as it provides um, helpful. We need to make sure that um, we are not joining forces with people who have a different mandate than Amnesty has. Um, Amnesty prides itself on being independent from governments, being independent from other organizations, and just works on the basis of all its members and on small donations from their membership. So if we have a big call for a demonstration in Germany where everyone together against climate change or against whatever right-wing uh, motions that happen in Germany as well, then we need to be careful which call for a protest we sign as Amnesty. And we try to uh, do that very uh, carefully in order not to uh, hamper our um, um vision as much as our standing in in public okay so um having said that it always helps if if you look at the people who are doing the same stuff as we like uh, human rights watch and, and others there's obviously a little bit of a competition who has better information but we obviously work jointly as much as we can and it comes to 
what information can you get from a situation of war in Ukraine to um, prove that there are gross violations of humanitarian law happening right now in that situation and bring people to court um, later on. Uh, it requires everybody who can help. So, Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and the Global Assembly, I mean, how often does it take place? Um, and do you also have to elect a, a board to manage the decisions? Yeah. How does that go? Yes. So it, it used to be uh, biannually. Uh, when I first did this in 87, 89, it was biannually. And now we change it to an annual cycle because uh, we uh, came to the conclusion that the um, world is moving too fast uh, to only come together every second year uh, with uh, all sorts of problems uh, to get to a, a global yearly cycle. For instance, now at times of Corona, we do this online, which is not the best way to do uh, parliamentary work. Yes, we elect a board, international board, it's called. And that is some nine to 13 people. Some of them are co-opted, so uh, nine elected. And um, they steer through the year. But with this move to a annual cycle, we have decided that we have standing representatives that can be called at any time during the cycle to take important decisions. So every country has one vote. So we have a council of um, 56 global assembly standing representatives who can take uh, decisions ad hoc if we need be. But the meeting takes place uh, once a year. Okay, all right. And this year, unfortunately, only online, which yeah. I hate because it's not the same as meeting these really interesting and engaged and activist people in person where you can draw a lot of uh, power from. Sure, and, and I imagine inspiration um, is involved in the power that you're that you're referring to. Um, I mean, what kinds of topics do you uh, decide then? So, I mean, are these sort of general policy issues? Do these reflect uh, specific issues in specific countries? Um, you know, how how much do you get involved into the the detail, or do you, for example, simply? Um, mandate uh, a country to to do or a group to do certain kind of research into an issue to report back. I mean, how much detail does the Global Assembly go into? Quite a bit. So last time round, we decided on a new 10 years plan, which is a very um, enthusiastic undertaking to foresee the next 10 years and say, how do we want to invest our energies and monies uh, the coming 10 years? And what goals do we try to achieve and try to put numbers against the goals? And uh, so that was a big, big piece of work. Now we are in the cycle to implement this 10 years plan. And um, already it becomes clear that uh, certain adjustments potentially need to be made and uh, we need to take further decisions uh, going down that path. At the same time, and, and now I'm going back to my history, uh, at the early years of my amnesty involvement, we needed to take a decision, would we adopt as prisoners of conscience, which is this amnesty concept uh, to look at uh, the individual at risk, 
because they were in um, put in prison because they were homosexual. There was a huge debate in amnesty because people in the global south said, when we put this as official amnesty policy, we can close down in my country. Black Africa totally objected against this being uh, an amnesty uh, mandate. Now, looking from today, this sounds ridiculous. We, we cannot even think of that one could potentially have such a position. But it was a battle that was um, fought in the Global Assembly at that time. It was then called International Council Meeting. Um, and, and further sort of expansion of the mandate, like is the work against climate change, has that anything to do with amnesty? And there were people who said, no, that is different organizations shall be done by Fridays for Future and others. And we said, but there are gross human rights violations involved, the right to water, the right to um, well-being, uh, the right to land because uh, water will rise and people will lose their islands and so on. So we said there is a close connection between uh, human rights violations and the climate change. And we need to work on our side, the amnesty side, on the human rights part of the climate change and the work against it. And this year we have another funding of amnesty, as I said earlier, is from little donors that give regularly uh, money, but we obviously are always in need for more money to put more uh, program in place in all parts of the world. In order to raise more funds, there is options to get dollars from international organizations, UN organization, United Nations uh, Refugee Council, for instance, offers money for bona fide organizations who make program. Should we accept such money? We have stated clearly we do not accept government money because we are independent of governments. Now, is this whitewashed or greenwashed by put to the United Nations? And we then receive it from the United Nations, but it is government dollars in, in essence, taxpayers' money. Um, so should we accept that? Is it good enough if it comes from the European Union, which is even more direct government money? So that is a decision we need to take. Mm. And obviously there are lots of sections of amnesty in need of more money, and they uh, tend to be positive. And then there are the, the old... Uh, age MST people have said, no ways we can do this because it would hamper our global picture. We are independent and we need to be independent. Such decisions. Okay, so that there are going to be some heated debates at this year's Global Absolutely. <laughs> okay, yeah, it will be interesting to, to hear about the the results of that. Um, I, I'm sure that, um, yeah, that there will be some good, strong arguments on, on all sides of the debate. So, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, you mentioned climate change there, um, and also the UN. So, you know, the UN has uh, these um, sustainable development goals, um, which um, none of them are going to be actually achieved by 2030, the way things are going at the moment, which is, um, you know, in some ways, it's a joke. In other ways, it's the, the worst joke in history, because you know, this is our future that we're talking about. Um, yeah, there, there is a huge uh, connection isn't there between human rights and climate change because um, essentially 
the in many cases the developed world and i hate using that term but should we say the industrialized world the west and so on um in so many ways push them the uh, how should i say the the energy the um, um the pollution of their industrialization to developing nations uh, and so thereby um it's actually they we that are causing um, further pollution and further deterioration of our climate um, but politically we're in a position where we could say yeah but look at them it's because of them they're the ones who are doing it even though they're, they're conducting business on our behalf um, and this I think is you know a, a very clear case of human rights violation because we're forcing other countries to do work because um, they simply don't have economies um, which are sustainable without that um, you know, inward pollutive investment. Um, I mean, are there perhaps um, campaigns which are considering you know, a system or a framework which can prevent this kind of um, globalized, um, how should I say, passing the buck you know, responsibility? Um, yeah, how can we prevent the, the sort of the West from um, further taking advantage of these countries uh, by forcing them to pollute for us? Very broad, very interesting question. Um, let me start by from our Western industrialized world, we have used our carbon footprint up ages ago already. And now we try to educate the rest of the world that they cannot get the same footprint because we have used it all up uh, and they shall develop other ways, but without carbon footprint, which is unfair in all respects. At the same time, the survival of the planet depends on that we get this all jointly organized, that we reduce immediately now uh, on a very large scale our footprint. So. Um, at the same time, the effects of the global climate change are hitting those worst who have the least uh, contributed to the situation. So the people in the uh, Pacific who are losing their islands uh, due to increased ocean levels, they have never polluted at any rate um, to come to that effect. At the same time, they lose their place of living and need to be relocated. Now, where do we offer them space uh, to build their living in the future? And do they want to go there? Uh, uh, and, and how do they want to live in, in the future? At the same time, the global economy is, as you say, uh, still dependent on a share of work that we have pushed the dirty and the polluting stuff elsewhere because we didn't want to have it in our country. At the same time, we are exploiting people on low wages and uh, their available resources that they have as their richness or their, their, um, um, their money in their countries by uh, the ingredients that you need for batteries and, and for mobile phones and for computers and what have you. So uh, we need to come, and that is a general fairness question, a better share of the burden between all, and everyone needs to contribute 
as much as they can, which means we can obviously invest more because we are rich. Um, but then even in Germany, if you sort of compare the rich part of the population to the poor part of the population, that is not fully true. So, so we need to make sure that the people who have the means contribute more and we all have a joint responsibility rescue this planet. The planet will survive. Humanity will not necessarily if we don't take steps right now. And this is now where sort of my different engagements meet because in the Green Party, I'm obviously driving programmatic approaches uh, that we fight climate change. Don't go back to atomic energy. Don't go back to burning uh, carbon uh, emitting whatever uh, from oil to gas to coal. And uh, at the same time, we are facing through the war situation, suddenly a shortage in, in energy. And we haven't been fast enough to build up uh, solar energy and wind energy to sustain uh, the levels that we require for our industry, for our mobility, for whatever. At the same time, I'm on the amnesty side <laughs> fighting for human rights or against human rights violation for the rights of people to water, to a place to live uh, and, and so forth. So that, that all comes together uh, at a juncture right now, which makes it very interesting, lots of work and lots of energy required from everybody to get it in the right direction which means influencing other people who still don't believe, don't know, don't accept that they are part of the problem and should change uh, from what they eat, how they travel, uh, how far they travel and so on, and how they heat their, their buildings. That was a broader answer, right? No, it was a broad question, so that's fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how, I know it's the role of politicians to lead. Um, I know it's the role of uh, sort of research institutes in Germany and universities in other countries to to innovate, to come up with creative solutions. Um, but don't you think? Uh, clearly, I imagine that you think I'm leading the question out here. Um, but isn't there? more that we can do on an individual basis um, as you mentioned a couple of things there um, not necessarily eating meat um, you know becoming or using our energy more efficiently but as in why do people have to wait for there to be a collective political decision we've seen the kids the young uh, of our societies go out and demonstrate with Fridays for the Future, which I think is a fantastic movement. I love seeing youth engagement. And that was one of the great things at the Amnesty evening the other week was there were so many young people there, um, which I found extremely motivating. Um, but is it, I mean, can't we also as individuals, um, as members of society, take more responsibility ourselves um, to try to reduce our collective carbon footprint? Yes, we all can. And if you look at yourself, I look at myself, I'm not as um, strict with myself as I should be. So I fail at times when I feel it's appropriate to jump in a car because it's so convenient and I could have done it else, uh, otherwise. Um, when I eat something at a grill party that I shouldn't eat, I know that and I still like it. So um, the individual responsibility is one piece 
where it's easy, everyone can contribute and everyone should move a step ahead at a time and go the right path. But we need political decisions as uh, the people um, that go far beyond that. And they are tough decisions. And whenever my party re sort of requests certain decisions to be made, we are nicknamed the forbid things party, uh, which is not the point. The point is that collectively we need to come to the conclusion that we all need to take much bolder steps than we are currently doing. And, and so if opponents to this politics or this, this uh, ideas state, no, everyone himself can take this decision. And if we all would do, it would all become good is not true. So we all need to do individually steps and um, every step helps. Every single kilowatt hour that hasn't been spent is still there and reduces carbon footprint. Uh, so from that perspective, yes, everyone individually can do that, but as society and states and member states of EU and um, UN and what have you, we need to jointly decide. And, and that's where politics or politicians lead or need to lead. We need to take the bolder decisions. And, and some of them are coming and that is good news. Some of them are too slow. When we say, okay, we'll burn fuel in cars and even the car industry has now understood that this is not sustainable and they changed their fleet model to an all electric fleet um, sooner than people are prepared to forbid that carbon burning cars are still running the streets. And, and we uh, put this motion out and said, we need to forbid these cars by year X. And there was huge outcry that German industry will die German people who work in this industry will lose all their incomes and will be uh, poverty in Germany. And it's all not true. <laughs> so at the same time, we have the FDP position like this will all be overcome by inventions that we still need to make in future. And the market will uh, sort it all out, which is not true either. So it does or has not proved to sort it out and we are on a very dangerous path with our carbon emissions. So um, if you had the good idea uh, and is, uh, um, how do you say H uh, uh, as a fuel, uh, Wasserstoff? Uh, hydrogen, hydrogen. Hydrogen uh, as a another means that can be sort of uh, one out of solar power and then uh, used to uh, uh, bring aircraft forward or uh, large uh, uh, industry uh, machines. So we could have done this 20 years ago. We didn't because we felt there is enough oil and gas and there's no problem. And, and now we find out, oh, we still had enough uh, burning power but we have used our carbon footprint in the interim and we shouldn't have done that so suddenly we need more energy to cool down because the uh, earth is getting too hot so um, bottom line individual responsibly yes and every little piece helps and 
state regulation required, politicians need to uh, make a broad back and say, we'll take these decisions. It is good for my country. It's good for the planet. And at the same time, be fair to the other countries who are not as developed and not as rich as we are and say, we can burden more of uh, or shoulder more the burden um, than you can. Yeah. You mentioned the, the FDP. So currently, um, the Green Party is in a coalition government with the FDP and the SPD. Um, from the outside, and I say at the outside, I try to put myself into a neutral perspective, even though I voted for Greens. So um, that, I can't be neutral. But anyway, um, but from that perspective, looking at the German government, um, I have to say that the, the two most um isn't how can I say the high profile the most high profile figures are uh, mrs Baerbock and mr harvick um, that's how it seems to me um and they've been the most impressive um in not only in the way that they have uh, conducted themselves in the business of government um but also in their communication they they seem to be very open they they want to engage with people um is this like a party decision from within the Green Party that say, look, we need to engage more and this is why this is the case? Um, um, or is this also simply a question of personality that the people within the Greens are just generally more human or community facing? Um, and yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll just go with that because otherwise I'm throwing too many broad questions at you and that's not fair. Yeah. So well, the funny thing is, even in our little borough of Reinickendorf, we are in the same um, traffic light coalition uh, with FDP, SPD and Greens. So we experience this on a daily basis that they come from a totally different background into this coalition. Um, I am very proud um, that the Greens currently from the outside are seen as the drivers in this uh, coalition at the federal level sometimes even at the borough level, um, that we take pride in taking bolder steps and explain it because we only get majorities of the vote if we can explain what we do. So we need to take the voters alongside with us. And if you look at the polls, then you see it pays out. Um, so people trust that these Greens they are sometimes uh, maybe too green for many people, but they see, they obviously take the necessary steps and they can explain why they do so. And that applies to Robert as much to Annalena, that they are very clear on why they travel, where they go to and what is required right now. And it is tough decisions. I am a peace activist all my life and buying weapons is something I couldn't think of as something I would ever support. At the same time, when you find yourself or put yourself in the shoes of the people of Ukraine who self-defend their country, who would you be to tell them, we don't want you to self-defend, give up and uh, let the Russians rule you? So um, if I would be in the same position in Germany and decide on 100 billion for Bundeswehr and defense and NATO contributions, would I really want this? No, I, I think 
I'm a fan of Costa Rica. They live without a, a, an army since 53, I think. So uh, couldn't we survive on this planet without all this craze to put money that we, for instance, would need for fighting climate change as opposed to building weapons that we don't want to use ever. <laughs> so bottom line, uh, proud about the people who represent my party. And I think we have sent the right people in the right positions, which was not clear from the outset, as you know, when it came to who gets what post and who is the potential candidate for chancellery and who not. Um, and now we find out uh, even with a foreign um, office, uh, we obviously chose a lady who many people in from the outside said she is not capable of doing this. And now everyone is a proud German saying we have a very prominent and outspoken, if you heard her um, speak in front of the General Assembly of the United Nations, it was standing ovations. So people really got it. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of uh, Mrs. Baerbox. I think um, if uh, I think if any of the other main candidates um, had um, uh, done any of these small things that Mrs. Baerbock had unfortunately felt the need to apologize for, nobody would have mentioned it. As in, there wouldn't have been any inches in the newspapers about these issues. Um, but I think that there are sort of industrial concerns within Germany that, are, that I have a real fear uh, of Mrs. Baerbock because she means change. Um, and I think the Green Party means change. Um, and this is why they were concerned about them. Um, and so they tried to attack her re reputation with these, you know, crazy stories. Um, and it's a shame. Um, but I mean, I see a, you know, a very good future German Chancellor in, in Mrs. Baerbock too. Um, and well, I'm hoping that will be the case because yeah, we need to have a revolutionary form of politics uh, to generate the change uh, that is necessary for our future. It now could be the lead question as do we get to re-election soon because we messed up in the first place? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but I mean, there's another question, another interesting question is because you, you, I mean, the, the FDP and the, the Greens are, aren't necessarily um, uh, sort of natural partners uh, in many ways. Um, and yet it's working somehow, sacrifice for the greater good and so on. Um, if we look across the German border into France, um, at the weekend we saw that Macron lost his majority in Parliament. This will in some ways make it difficult for him to push through his agenda. And we know that France internally has quite a few problems as well. Um, how is it that Germany has managed so well over the last few decades. And I mean, political stability, I mean, economic growth, uh, I mean, you know, generally successful social cohesion as well, within a coalition framework. And yet other European countries like France, like the UK, for example, don't necessarily consider coalition governments to be stable. Uh, what's the key for it in Germany, do you think? 
Well, first of all, I, I think there are different um, voting election systems in different countries, which are part of the problem. If you sort of refer back to the UK, where their majority gets it all, um, which um, tends to lead to standoff to uh, main opponents in in parliament and no small parties whatsoever. We in Germany have been used to this little FDP deciding who gets the majority in the government in the end for quite some while. Um, so um, there is experience uh, in Germany how to deal with that. Coalitions are never good for the single party because it means compromise and you need to give away some of your main goals to others who have different goals and objecting goals at times. And if we sort of opted to give the Ministry for Mobility to an FTP guy, and he stood up and made all sorts of funny statements in his early days of office, we felt like, oh, we shouldn't have done this. So it is never easy. And the same applies locally in my little parliament as well. So you negotiate a contract, you put it in writing, and you try to think of everything that could happen the next five years and make sure that it is written down, we will decide this way, that way, that way. And at that point in time, at the beginning of your legislature, you already give up some of your positions. And you're beaten up by your constituencies. Your voter beat you up immediately. Like, how could you dare to give that up? So it is a, a difficult process. This morning in uh, one of my newspapers, there was a caricature uh, on um, the Chancellery of Germany and um, a bubble from uh, Scholz speaking into a telephone to Macron and saying, hey, you should get used to grand coalitions. It has worked for me as well. So suddenly uh, in France, uh, Macron lost his majority, now needs to find out how can he build a stable government and the pressure is from far left and far right, which is in, in both ways interesting because obviously that Marine Le Pen drew um, is a very bad sign for all of Europe. And um, hopefully the motion that we currently have in Germany with the AFD is uh, hopefully at some point in time catching up in, in France as well, but they have obviously built better relations in local communities as they are whatever for national is called now. On the other hand, you could on the left side see this group of parties who decided to work jointly uh, with Mélenchon and he tries to be the spokesperson for this group, but all the parties try to be still independent, which could mean that the largest opposition party is still Marine Le Pen with her 89 seats. So very difficult situation and question is how can Macron come out of that or does he need to compromise regularly, which could be or could have an effect on all of Europe. Um, obviously, as some of these parties want to get out of the European Union and want to uh, have France first and whatever, um, uh, always has an international impact as well. As we have with the German coalition and international impact as well. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, and uh, yeah, I know you're busy, as we mentioned earlier, so if I can ask one more 
question. Um, and you mentioned at the beginning um, that uh, part of the work that you do is against human rights violation, but also the growth of the, the, the far right or extreme right in some cases. And you mentioned there uh, Marine Le Pen, who's been very popular in France for some time. Um, so this isn't like a sudden phenomenon all of a sudden, well, um, she's, you know, faced two um, head off uh, runoffs for president uh, in a row against Macron. Um, so that, you know, once was perhaps a surprise, but twice is not a coincidence, I think it's fair to say. Um, generally speaking, we can see uh, the, a, a, sud a kind of wave of right wing growth around uh, democratic countries. So if you talk from the USA under Trump, uh, conservatism in the UK under now Boris Johnson, but also the Brexit votes, I think is also a reflection of, you know, the right growth of the right wing. Um, and also in Europe, we've seen some EU partners um, have um, introduced some laws, which we would say uh, definitely go against uh, human rights and justice within their countries, Hungary and Poland and so on. Um, Denmark, Austria, so also, yeah. Further. Yep. Indeed. Um, this is a worrying phenomenon. Do you think um, that uh, in Germany, but also generally speaking, uh, countries in Europe um, have dedicated enough attention to this growth? Because um, it seems to me it's happening and there's not too much attention being paid to it in the media. Um, nor do I see so many speeches by politicians saying, look, we've got to be careful. Um, you know, isn't, should there be more debate about this growth? Um, or or, or is, am I missing something? I'm convinced that there must be more public debate about this um, and always looking at examples that show and prove that things can turn totally uh, negative uh, in other places and this not to happen in, in Germany and help the others to fight against it uh, in their respective countries. Now, if you recall the Yellow Vests movement in France, that was, I, I think, a turning point where there was a popular movement against the governments, the ruling whatever we need to stand up uh, that could have happened similarly in Germany. It was close to it, I feel. Um, and that could have profited the AFD predominantly and other even further right-wing parties um, in order to, um, these ruling people are against the population and uh, we need to get them out of office. And uh, we are the, wir sind das Volk, we are, uh, people. Mm. the people. Um, so it, it could have happened in Germany. Now, if you look at the development of the AFD, it tends to be an East German phenomenon. Uh, and now it turns to get more radical with the latest party meeting they had. Uh, you could clearly see that Höcke is gaining momentum. So, so he could be one of these leaders that similar to Marine Le Pen gets uh, a larger group of unsatisfied people behind him and, and leads a movement. And that is where we need to stand in right away, stand up and say, stop here and 
currently we are feeling a little bit relieved because um, in the polls, AFD goes down, but it is not necessarily that needs to stay the same way. So uh, we need to be uh, alert. Um, when the Corona, uh, the people who were against vaccinations uh, in Corona times uh, stood up and uh, marched the streets, it was a very interesting uh, mixture of people that went to the streets. And suddenly right-wing parties like the Third Way, Dritte Weg, came with big posters and joined these demonstrations. AFD jumped on the bandwagon, others did. So suddenly that could have happened and, and moved. Now that has gone back as well. So, so you see that these uh, motions come and go and we need to be on alert, everybody. And, and that is why we are trying to get organized ourselves with the democratic part of the German population to be ready to stand up wherever it needs to be. Unteilbar is one of these movements that work pretty well for Germany, I think. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Um, and, and it's great to see that your social engagement um, will also contribute, perhaps in this case, to the fight against uh, the, the spread of the right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Hinrich, thank you very much. Um, it's great being able to talk politics. Um, it's great being able to also talk specifically German politics with a person who is actually involved in, in the whole process as well. Um, and of course, you know, amnesty, you know, human rights topics, which are close to my heart too. Um, I, I, I welcome uh, an opportunity to sit down and talk with you again in the future, um, perhaps after the holidays, though, when you've got everything else <laughs> all done with. Um, yeah, all that remains for me to say is thank you very much. It's been thoroughly interesting listening to you speak um, and uh, a real education. Thank you very much, Inrich. Thank you, Zach, for the right questions <laughs> and obviously for your engagement and, and, and bringing such talks to public uh, on the same hand, uh, ready for another talk, but after the vacations, please. Uh, <laughs> well, there's an interesting uh, trip to Brazil for me in, in that, uh, which is coming back to this point, uh, are you doing everything to prevent climate change? And I'm still flying to Brazil, but my brother lives there and he's old and I need to see that I uh, visit him. Okay. At the same time, you can see in Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro and his politics, and there's obviously work to be done in on that side of the ocean as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is an indicator of perhaps one of the, uh, it's a hard word to say, but it's the, the failures of the UN um, I think that uh, we haven't managed to step in front of these issues around the world. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a topic for after the, the next one, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after the holidays. Um, yeah, thank you very much, and um, all the best in English to and to you. And Take care and bye. stay healthy. Two and a mic.